Hi, lab mates. Welcome to the Social Learning Lab, a podcast about social learning at work. In today's episode, the team discusses the topic of social influence. Our goal is to provide you with in-depth research, examples, and conversation starters in regards to the effect social influence has on individuals and groups. Hi, lab mates. Welcome to another episode of the Social Learning Lab. Um, I'm Rocio, the Junior Project Manager at Your Instructional Designer, and I'm here with Diego and Nicole. Today we have a kind of different episode. Uh, we're going to take a deep dive into learning and explore the topic of social influence. Yay! <laughs> I'm super pumped for this episode. I think understanding social influence can unlock so much uh, in your business, in your life, in your sales, if that's the thing you do, in your instructional design, hopefully, if you're creating social experiences. So I'm pumped. I don't know about you two. Definitely. I think social influence is one of those things that's very subliminal. And a lot of us don't realize that it's all around us happening every single day, What no matter what we do. So definitely excited to get to learning with everyone. Yeah, for sure. I was socially influenced to be in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no nudging whatsoever Awesome. Well, I'm going to jump right in um, and you two just take the lead wherever you feel like it's a good spot for you. All right. Um, okay. So let's talk about why social influence, right? We, we talked about the fact that you can use it in a lot of different ways and a lot of different spaces, but like, what are we really talking about? So one of the reasons social learning is so effective is because social influence is powerful. So we're hardwired to learn from the people around us, which is pretty neat. Um, at the same time, the three of us here, we're filming from the U.S., which is a hyper-individualistic culture, right? We think we do everything on our own. We're making our own decisions. Uh, we think we make every decision logically, right? We've, we've sourced all our facts. Or we know we're making it emotionally, but it's our own emotions and no one else's that are guiding the decision. Um, but I'm going to tell you, we're all wrong. Like, the evidence is overwhelming that we are highly influenced by the people around you and the cultural messages that we get. So lab mates, uh, like Rocio said, it's time to take that deep dive into the effects of social influence and think about how you might experiment with this in your own pursuits. Um, so the first topic that I found super interesting as I started to research social influence is that your brain is actually hardwired to default to social learning over individualized learning. So you've literally got two channels, right? There's this one where you go on this deep dive and you start looking through everything, or maybe you're taking um, a quiz or you're looking through your notebook, right? Like you have an intention to learn and you're doing it in a vacuum. That is not the default. Even though we spend tons of time, you know, thinking <laughs> textbooks and schooling is it, it, it's actually social learning. So when your brain isn't intentionally making a shift to individual learning, you are literally just taking everything in all the time, looking at people, thinking about people, about how they're talking to each other and everything. I thought that was pretty cool. I don't know about you two. No, for sure. And I feel like say this in every episode and every time I talk about social learning, but it's just, I, I think that it's the most basic instinct to learn that way. There's even like thousands of years ago, right? Like when language was limited and, um, you know, people communicated differently, a lot of the things was learned by social learning and observing your environment. So um, I definitely think that 
it is a good thing to move away from this individualistic way of learning. Um, and I think that once this starts to take off the idea of social learning, things are going to change and in a positive way. No, for sure. And I think even like growing up, you realize that a lot of the stuff you learn is through influence of who you hang around and who you're, the people you surround yourself with, you know, it's very important to realize that at an early age, because as you move on and you get older, you realize that that's going to impact you more. And if you want to be successful in your life, you want to be around people that are going to be successful and, you know, also learn things like, I know for me, learning another language is definitely an important being in a Hispanic household and stuff like that. And that's kind of part of the social influences. You're surrounded by this, you know, second language that you hear. So it's part of it. And so I think it is important to realize what's going on around you. I always get mad at my dad because he is Greek from Greece. And growing up, the first five years of my life, I lived in a duplex next to my grandparents. And then we moved to New Jersey. And um, my dad didn't think it was important to continue teaching me. So it's a loss. I mean, not that I can't as an adult now go try to learn it, but it's much harder when you're not socially in an atmosphere to learn a new language. Right? I guess immersion, right, is, is case in point. <laughs> you learn new language so much faster when you're forced yeah. to socialize with it. And that's that's an interesting point, Diego, because I feel like I have a complete different personality when I am speaking Spanish than when I'm speaking English. And then in Spanish, I have a complete different personality, like when I'm with my Cuban family or my husband's Dominican family. So it's really interesting. And I think that has to do with social influence and like the norms of that social group and how you adapt to it so yeah there's so much i want to unpack there but i'm not going to because i feel like this episode one yeah. is three hours long if i sit with it um but i it will pull into some of the stuff we're going to talk about later so lab mates hang on to those ideas because they're coming back around but i think what we're all getting at here is it is instinctual that's the word that you used before you think and so that means to thrive to survive as a human species we've adapted social learning as our priority learning method. That's really interesting then that we are constantly trying to break out of our actual evolutionary survival <laughs> instinct. Right? Yeah. Um, also associated with these weird survival instincts we have, I found this one interesting. So we feel obligated to repay people who do favors for us. Um, so research shows that even small gifts can be highly influential, even if you think not, right? Like politicians are like, oh, that $25 drink this person bought me at the fancy restaurant is too small a bribe. But no, like actually research shows that even if you don't like the person, if they do you a small favor, you just feel obligated to repay it, which is maybe how you all wound up on this podcast here. <laughs> not sure, but... Um, <laughs> You know, it's one of the reasons like nonprofits might send you those customized address labels as an obligation free gift when they hope you'll donate or a salesperson might bring you like just a little treat before you sign the lease for a very expensive vehicle. Um, and the bigger the favor, the longer the influence. And again, this is this is a survival tactic because you wanted to make sure that if you were trading something of value to you, that you would get something of value in return and vice versa, that you would give to that other person so that the human species could survive. So it's really interesting that these things that seem completely just, you know, maybe sales tactics or something like that are actually programmed into us by evolution. So, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Because I know as a 
recovering people pleaser, I always feel obligated to, you know, meet people where they may have met me in the past. No, for sure. I think 100%. I feel the same way. I feel like if somebody offers me something or anything, especially like when you're at the mall and you're walking by like the a little like Aunt Annie's or Wetzel's pretzels and they have and they give you the pretzel, you're like, well, now I feel bad because I just took one. So I'm like, I have to go buy a pretzel. So then you're like, oh, and then you're realizing, oh, that was just all part of their tactic to make you because you feel like you have to give back because you got it or something. Or even when you do like donations with the Salvation Army in the front, you know, they're waving their little bell and everything and they just greet you. You're like, you know, you just feel like out of generosity, you have to give them a tip, you know, give them like whatever change you have and stuff like that. So I think it's really important that, you know, we notice those things because that is part of social influence. We're being influenced to, you know, give back even when we don't even feel like we need to or have to. Yeah, I don't know, guys. I don't think I fit into this bucket. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, I don't know. I feel like, okay, funny side story. Um, I saw a meme the other day and, I, and it said like, oh no, I'm in my 30s. I'm in my selfish season. Anyways, <laughs> um, but that is not something that, and I think there's going to be people out there that don't feel influenced by that. Um, so I don't know what it is, but they don't get to me. <laughs> so the research would say, if you're well, if you're very self-aware, you can stop the small stuff. But we do still feel obligated on a bigger level, um, and so I think about I'm gonna think I'm gonna call it out. But like uh, we have a flexible work schedule, mm -hmm. right? So I think one of the reasons you've told me you stay around your ID, I mean, hopefully you <laughs> like it and all that other stuff, but is because you, you feel like you've been given a favor, right? Like oh, I got this thing I needed for my home life that makes. That makes sense for me. And so now I feel a little more invested yeah. in when, yeah. doing something. When you look Nicole, about it that way. Crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. And no, I'm not yeah. leaving you anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, let it be noted. That's on record. <laughs> on no, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, but but you do see what's happening. Yeah, right? yeah, so like yeah. when someone meets you halfway and I feel the same way, you know, it, not going to say I feel obligated, but I do like I know you all bring your best selves to work every day. And so I feel obligated as the person who's overseeing the organization to try to bring the best of whatever I can do. And sometimes that is a, a lot of uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm, you know, think about it too much. And so that's not necessarily a good thing either. But like being conscious of the fact that you feel like you owe something and then thinking about, well, what's the the outcome of this, I guess, or do I want, do I want to give it because of genuine reasons or because I feel a sense of obligation? Like you're all saying, right? Rocio is really good at noticing that when the salespeople are trying to give her the free pretzel at the mall kind of thing. Yeah, but not when Nicole is giving me flexible time. <laughs> <laughs> and right. So that's the evidence, bigger favor, bigger, bigger sense of duty. Um, but I, I, I got that out of, uh, Robert Caldini's. I'm sorry if I'm bashing your name, Bob, but, um, his book, Influence, it's wonderful. We'll talk about it more on this episode. But uh, I thought it was really interesting because his whole premise in this book is he's identifying lots of ways that influence happens in our lives, but he's saying, like, how can we do it ethically? And so that's what I'm trying to bring back for us as a team and then hopefully for our lab mates listening right now. You know, how do we bring that back ethically into the ways that we work and the ways we do learning and development? So, like, 
you know, I'm thinking like, how do you gently bribe people into participation? I remember working with SKS and being like, well, you could do like a little swag giveaway to get people on, right? Give them some socks or something like, you know, low stakes. But, um, you know, like how do you make people feel like they have to show up without just making it feel like it's the only reason they show up? So that was one of the things I was thinking about. And then, um, the other thing, and this is why I think social learning works, it's because the more people exchange, the more exchange there is, right? So like, as we share ideas on this podcast here, like if you respond, sometimes I feel like I need to respond just to meet your energy. And so as that happens in a community, it's really interesting to see like, oh, someone gave me a resource. So I feel like next time someone asks me for a resource, I need to contribute versus if it's just the company putting things out all the time, there is no sense of obligation or favor owing, if you will. And so people don't talk. Yeah. You know, the way that you're describing this, it it reminds me back to the topic of like people's currency, right? Like what are people willing to, uh, yeah, like what are they willing to exchange for what they're getting? So it's a big question (laughs) and it's not an easy one to answer. And it's one of the reasons I think we do social learning really well is because we do a lot to try to answer that question especially when you get into like demographics and different things you know the buying for different people is different so our job is not easy <laughs> <laughs> no but it's it's uh, another nudge to really do that learner analysis yeah. that audience analysis i like or, or participant analysis whatever you want to call it but it's a really important step in the process to creating great social learning or any learning, but definitely social learning. Like you can't do it if you don't understand your people. Yeah, and what influences them too. Yeah. All right, so I'm moving us along because yes. there is we so much to cover. We could just sit here and talk about this all day long. I know. Well, so there is this interesting thing too that happens when you get to a new group, um, or you're just in any social situation, which is imitation. Yeah. And so people who are very empathetic, they actually think might have more of these mirror neurons where you're like actually coded to imitate people. Um, but in sales, you hear it all the time. I know in tutoring, I heard it all the time, like mirror your coachy, you know, client, whatever it is, mirror their behavior. So if they're very soft-spoken, you want to be soft-spoken. If they're very aggressive and bold, you want to be aggressive and bold. If and you might just find yourself subconsciously if someone like I used to twirl my hair and I'm pretty sure I got that from my mom's best friend Veronica because she would twirl her hair and I was with her all the time. So subconsciously I was just picking up the habits and hopefully that one's not one I have all the time anymore. Um, but you know, it, it's interesting because we are doing it all the time. And so one of the things I picked up is actually from Jonah Berger's book. And I love this book. Like anyone listening, just go read this book. It doesn't matter what field you're in, but especially in LD, I think there's so much value in it. It's called Contagion, Why Things Catch On. And it's about virality, like how things go viral. It's very interesting. And it's not just all about like TikTok. Um, very cool. But anyway, he says literally making things more observable makes them easier to imitate which makes them more likely to become popular. I thought that was really interesting because so many times we're talking about these abstract concepts or, you know, even me, like I'm always stuck in academic mode. Um, And that makes it really hard for other people to be influenced by what I'm putting out because it's not concrete and it's not something they can just mimic and do. Um, And so the other thing that was kind of interesting is like, to think about can people see others using your product or engaging in the desired behavior? I don't know. I don't know what, 
what that says, but um, I thought that was really interesting. Have you seen that in effect anywhere? Because I, I could think of a few examples, but I'd be curious what comes to mind for you too. Can you provide one example? Uh, yeah, I think of like, I'm about to say it and I'll take it from another one, but um, if every, if you watch like your boss operate software a certain way, even if it's not the way you're trained, you're probably going to start imitating your boss using the software that way when it comes to be your turn. So that, that could be one example. Um, and then about using products. How many of us have an iPhone <laughs> or a smartphone at least, right? That's, that's all imitation. Like I see someone doing this and doing this, then I know when I use the phone, I do this or I do this. I mean, there's a lot of ways that I see it. In or action. like how I still select fruit based on how my mom used to select fruit when we used to go to the supermarket, right? Like everyday life yeah. stuff. Yeah. Sure. And then I think even like, I noticed this thing and I had read it one time that you're, when you see somebody like yawn or like do something, you're more likely to do it too. Cause you're like, even though you're not, you don't have any reason to be like tired or anything, you're just going to yawn because they yawn and stuff like that. So I think it's very interesting to think that we do imitate. Like if, like you said, with your phone, if somebody checks their phone, you're more than obligated to like pick up your phone and be like, Oh, maybe I got a notification too. And I think we've hardwired our brains in that aspect of like, Oh, whatever somebody else is doing, maybe I should be doing it too, because we kind of want to be like, it's, I think that fear of missing out, that makes us want to do it more, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think at some point there were like this social experiment going around. I don't know if it was Facebook or Instagram. It was a while back. And it was like people getting on an elevator, right? And then the first person like took off their shoes and put it to the side. And then the next person walked in and and then they take off their shoes. And then everybody that walks in <laughs> that they have to take off their shoes to get into the elevator. But it was just a social experiment. And it's just what we do, right? Like, we want to fit in. And that's where imitation comes in. We want to feel accepted within the social norms of wherever we are, whether it's at work, whether it's at another place. And sometimes we even do things harder there being an easy way because this is the way that we observe it being done especially if it's someone that has more power than you or someone that you look up to, you want to do the same things the same way so you can feel a little bit closer to that power or closer to that influence. So That's so funny. I'm actually thinking of there's also a prank that happens right now. It's like the imaginary freak out. Like people just pretend all of a sudden there's this terrible thing and you watch their partners also start freaking out and there's yeah. nothing there, right? Like nothing. Yeah, um, yeah it's really funny. Uh, but then, so we did have the question of like the product use, but it's interesting because a lot of times, what do we do? We like go to take these private trainings in our learning management systems. No one sees us do it. Maybe later there's like a certificate and that might be a prompt that, you know, makes it visible, makes it imitatable. But generally we don't observe people in the learning process unless we're like in a classroom with them or maybe in a breakout room with them. And so thinking about, well, how do we make our learning products visible? How do we make the fact that people are getting involved in organizational learning in our organization visible, especially I'm going to say from leadership, like if leadership isn't modeling, this is huge evidence, right? If leadership is not modeling good continuous learning, guess what? Odds are the rest of your team is not going to be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us, so you're talking about all these things that I couldn't help but think of. Uh, well, let me backtrack actually. So one of the other things he says before I move us on to dance hall theory is that uh, 
he cautions, so Jonah Berger cautions people against saying everybody's doing it when you don't want people to do it. And I thought that was really funny. So he was talking about um, the music industry trying to explain how widespread music piracy is and being like, oh, you know, uh, basically saying like everybody's doing it. It's a massive problem. There's millions of people just stealing music and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, everyone then assumes that everyone's doing it and therefore it's okay. So you actually get the opposite result. Um, if you tell everybody that everybody's doing it because you want to stop everybody from doing it. <laughs> yeah, no, are, you, like, well, are you too young for LimeWire? Do you remember LimeWire? No. Napster, <laughs> LimeWire, yeah. So before streaming services, this was definitely a thing. Like everybody just stole music on the internet. And myself, um, hopefully the, you know, I... Hopefully I don't get called in now because we definitely all had Napster as kids and we just, we didn't know or we sure. didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't see the repercussions of your actions. And thus we all just thought that like downloading music without paying for it was totally normal and file, it was file sharing. It was ironically social yeah. <laughs> sharing that enabled it, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, but on the flip side, if you say everybody's doing something you know, and you want them to do it, then you're more likely to get people to do it. So that's where dance hall theory comes in. So we've got the imitation piece, right? Like you want to do things that somebody else is doing because you're hardwired to imitate, but then there's this whole thing of the dance hall. And so have you ever been to a club where nobody is on the dance floor or a wedding or an event? Yeah. Have you ever been first to the dance floor? Yeah, me too. So there is that moment of leadership. I love it, but it is a moment of like, everybody is looking at me right and so that's the theory nobody wants to be first it takes a very brave person who's willing to confront our uh evolutionary instinct to mission with the tribe right like oh if i do something that's against the tribe's norms they're gonna yeah they're gonna cancel me out right they're gonna push me out they're gonna exile me they're not gonna want to do things so it's evolutionary to not want to be first to do something uh, and that is a really big thing for us to think about is to think about building social learning and learning environments in our organizations because somebody has to be first. And so I'm going to put it on the leaders to either be first or identify people who can be first. Um, it's also the reason why if you look at like a busker, you know, if you've been around the city and you see people playing instruments, they've got their music case open. The people who wind up making tips are usually the people who are smart enough to put dollars in their case before people started walking by. Because they're like, oh, somebody already tipped them. I guess they were worthy of a tip and it's socially acceptable to tip this person. Um, same thing with Kickstarter campaigns. I learned this actually from somebody I interviewed for my dissertation study, but he basically said like, Kickstarters don't just organically start. Like they have plants who go in and immediately when that Kickstarter campaign goes live, they fund it. Um, because when you see that this Kickstarter has been funded, it shows there's some interest. And so you think, okay, it's okay to be interested too. And so how do, I guess the question for me is like, how do we bring people to the learning dance floor, right? Like, how do we bring them into the team? How do we get them to participate in the community? Knowing that people usually don't want to be first. Yeah, it's a big question. I'm not like, expecting an immediate response, but like, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think it's up to us as uh, leaders or as designers to think about, you know, what steps we're taking to make people feel like other people are already doing it. So, well, you know, I, brainstorm. Yeah, not necessarily an answer to the question, but I do think that leaders need to be more invested in their people to know who those people that are going to go in the dance floor first are. 
So, you know, if you yeah. don't know, then it's not going to happen. You do need someone. You you, you need the influencers, right? Like the, the social yeah. influencers that are going to influence the rest of the group. And even when we talk about social learning networks, which is not the topic of today, but you need those influencers that are going to bring people into the network and it's going to be conversation starters. So if the leaders don't know those people and they can't identify them within the organization, it's not. Yeah, it's yeah, a great point. Cha- you need to know your change champions, yeah, and people exactly. who are going to do the legwork, and you need to know your internal influencers. That's not necessarily your leaders, right? Yeah, to your yeah. point. It, but, yeah. but the leaders do need to be on board with it. Like, it's not something that you just hand off. Like, you need to be, people are more likely, if, if the leader is the face of the movement, right? Like, if they see that the persons above them are kind of pushing them or, you know, gently, uh, guiding them and they see that they're interested and little by little, the interest from them also starts to show. Uh, I mean, a great example would be this pod class right here. I think we're the first <laughs> ever kind of do a pod class. And I think, you know, at first me and Rocio were like a pod class, like, what is this? And, you know, because Nicole, you've been such a strong leader and you've been like, yes, this is an idea. We're going to be the first to do it. We're going to push this out there. I think that's what got us interested and been like, yes, let's get a part of this. Let's be a part of something new, something new to the table. And I think, you know, like we said, we're, you know, being the first to do this. And I think that's going to change how podcasts are made too. I think there'll be more structures like ours now going forward and stuff like that. And I think even within the e-learning settings and stuff like that, that idea of putting social influence will now be more implemented into it. And hopefully from a business side too, they look at, you know, their communities and like, how can I implement this? you know, within my organization, not just from a business standpoint, but from an organizational standpoint. I hope refers to the pod class game. Um, <laughs> and I hope it influences people <laughs> they want to do it. And I think, uh, well, thank you for saying those nice things. But, you know, I, I feel like we still have room to grow ourselves. And so I'm interested to see how this will evolve through social influence of the people who listen, our lab mates, our community, um, people who just happen to offhandedly think about this stuff and actually never listen to the pod class. I'm open to their opinion. <laughs> But <laughs> social influence, right? Yeah. Points all taken. So I'm going to flip the script a little bit here because then there's like, so we talked about imitation, right? We talked about um, how are you going to bring people to the dance floor, right? The dance hall theory. But then there's this interesting thing that also happens, which is when you have too many people together who actually also don't know what they're doing, which may have been us last week trying to figure this podcast out. <laughs> But it's uh, it's called pluralistic in it's in let me try that one again. Um, no claps. Plural. Uh, nope. One more time. Pluralistic ignorance. I don't know why that was so hard. But basically, uncertain people are looking for cues from other people, right? So, oh, that person gets on the dance floor. Great. Now I feel more certain that I can get on the dance floor too. But when everybody is uncertain and nobody really takes action, or people who have no idea what they're supposed to be doing take action, which is maybe a, a also not great situation. You know, um, bad things can happen. So in the art of gathering that we're reading, you know, as a book club in our, our work as well, Priya Parker talks about, you know, the generous authority and how it's actually ungenerous to like, let your guests just kind of wander in and do as they please. Like you have to enforce the rules of the gathering, which is interesting and not necessarily what I thought I was going to talk about right now. But so that's one way of thinking about it. But in the really extreme case, do you two know who Kitty Genovese is? 
Does that even ring a bell? It's a, it's an old case. So I learned about it in a psychology class. Actually, I probably was learning about the same thing and just didn't remember it till now. But um, this woman walking down a street, many people observed this happening, but she was murdered. Um, yeah, and people saw it happening and nobody intervened. Nobody helped. Nobody called the police. Nothing happened. And so in the aftermath, basically what we came to understand is like nobody really knew it was happening. They might have assumed it was an internal domestic conflict, which, you know, there's all kinds of social issues around that that we don't have time to get into today. Um, But like nobody knew who should take charge or what to do. And so nobody did anything. And it's the reason why, you know, if you're in first aid training, one of the first things you learn is when there's an emergency, you don't say help. You say you call 911, you go get a blanket, you go do this thing. Because if you don't give people specific instructions and specific roles, you don't specify what they need to do, then they all come into the space and nobody knows and so nobody acts because they just think everything is going according to usual. Um, Another one of the examples in the book was like, this woman thought she saw somebody fall down a very steep hole, like a construction worker, and everybody in the site was kind of just looking around business as usual and people were walking by. So her own mind kind of was tricking her, right? Like, oh, I didn't really see it. He must be fine. But having read the book, Influence, she went and called, and it turns out the guy was down a hole in Poland where it was going to be sub-freezing temperatures all evening. He would have died. Um, And so he was saved because she recognized her own uncertainty, that own pluralistic ignorance in that moment, and just went for it anyway. Um, So I want to think about, you know, in a hopefully less severe case, but like, how do we think this pluralistic ignorance might play into our social learning experiences, into our workplaces? Uh, Can you think of anywhere you're seeing it happen or that you want to explore as I fidget? (laughs) Like, from like, a standpoint, like a student or anything, I know, like, especially lately, there's been a lot of cases of like, mental health and stuff like that going on and I feel like a lot of us realize that somebody's not okay and like you can see it like physically or mentally you can you can't see it mentally but you can see how they are physically they've changed over time and while a lot of us want to be like I know something's wrong but I don't want to ask and I think that's kind of where it is there's like all of us seeing it and then they all talk within each other but it it doesn't come until after that person has you know done some damage to themselves that you're like oh, maybe I should have, you know, said something a long time ago. And I even look at it from like a bullying standpoint, too. I think there's a lot of times that kids see it. And I think because nobody says anything about it, it's becoming where it's socially acceptable to be like, oh, well, if they got away with it, I can get away with it, too. And I think that's the issue is that we're not really we haven't taught kids that, you know, when you see something, say something. I think that's the big thing that they emphasize in school now is see something, say something. And I think that goes even in the workplace. I think, you know, with people who are in command and stuff like that, they have this sort of way they talk to people and it may not be the right manner. And I think a lot of us recognize it and it's like, that's not right treatment or stuff like that. And instead of us being like, you know, confronting the issue, we want to just fall back until it affects us personally. And I think that's the issue is that eventually it just continues to spread like wildfire and then it's out of control and you can't control anymore. So I think it's important that we find a containment for these kind of issues within our business setting, within our school settings, to really put it down right before it gets out and out and about about that. Because like you said, you know, if that if that lady didn't say something and go help that man, he would have died. And I think that's the same thing if, you know, we see somebody who's going through a rough time and we don't say something, 
it could be their life online or you know there's an employee being harassed or something you know verbally abused or something i think if we don't say something that could be them leaving the job and they could be one of our best workers you know so i think that's also important for us to just look and see you know while i don't want to do it it is my obligation to help this person in need and stuff like that psychological safety at work yeah. is a huge topic right now i mean the pandemic did a lot of harm for a lot of people um physically mentally emotionally so it's interesting that that's kind of where you landed diego i think that is really important to think about it reminds me there's a quote and i'm not saying it exactly the quote but it says that there's there's really not change until the people that are not affected by the issue take action right like you're not gonna see that change you're not gonna see you know, even when we talk about social issues, you're not going to see change in social issues until the people that are not affected by that issue start getting involved and start taking action. So I think that it's... And when we were talking, about, when we started this topic, I thought of that case. I didn't know that that was the name, but that was like the first thing that Keep popped into, into, into my mind, this idea of like, well, someone else is going to do it, right? And then no one does anything. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, we're talking about really extreme, yeah, horrible cases of, yeah. you know, how this pluralistic ignorance plays out. But let's say on the lesser extent, I think of just even, you know, you were talking about reaching out. So one simple thing, running from data to design when we did those cohorts, you know, people would drop off. Um, maybe it wasn't working within their life at that time, but one of the small things you can do as an instructor is just check in. It's a very easy thing to do, but it, I guess sometimes it escapes people that like you can have a faculty or trainer relationship with your students. And so just saying, hey, I noticed you know, you're a little behind. You should go at your own pace, of course, but is there anything I can do to help you be more successful in getting across the finish line or in meeting the goals you set out for yourself when you started this training? Um, so that's like one of the things that comes to mind, but I do think it's one of those situations where like we have to create environments as leaders and as trainers and as learning designers where we're saying, you go do this, you go, like we have to give them their roles. Even you were talking about the accepted and there is this balance, right? Between like, well, people are ignorant to their own part in the experience. And so that's, that's a challenge. And then the grassroots organizations are usually so successful because they create ways for people to participate, right? You, you might not want to stand on the picket line with us, but can you give me $5? You, you have a really interesting story, actually. Do you mind sharing it, right? Just calling people in. I think that that might be something interesting to think about. When I think even looking at it from like a book perspective, like dystopian books, the reason a lot of them, you know, they end in like, you know, very much traumatic or you know dramatic endings is because there's no sense of order and i think when you put that order and you put that in place i think that's what it creates if you put everybody at the same level it's going to fall apart because everybody has to have different roles in order to make this whole combination come together and i think you know even when we look at like leadership i think even from like a school setting you know you have the dean you have the the associate deans you have those leaders and then within you know organizations themselves we have presidents vice presidents you know, and then you have an e-board who does each little thing like social media is my job for my committee. And I, that's my main thing is I make sure I'm getting those stuff. And I think when you put those people there, it makes it easier to get jobs done. And I think 
that's where a lot of leaders fail is that they're like, they're just, you know, giving everybody the same work without really designating certain things to it. Like being like, okay, I need you to do this and I need you to do this. They're like, okay, well, you're the same department. You can do this whole thing, but that's not effective because every department has people who are, you know, good at different things. I mean, within our own team, I mean, Rocio does, you know, the project managing very well, which I wouldn't be able to do, but, you know, I have the graphics stuff and the graphic background that I could easily knock out some quick, you know, graphic uh, graphics for us, templates and stuff like that. So it's like we have to work together and use our strengths within our own departments as well. They're all great points. Actually, I'm just going to plug a little bit, but um, our blog post about Get Off the Stage talks about jigsaw learning, and that's kind of what this reminds me of. And that's very social. Like everybody has their role, and the facilitator is basically giving you the information you need to do that role successfully, and you all have to cooperatively solve a challenge. And I, I think that's a great example of social learning that could kind of mimic how perhaps a really effective team should work. Uh, <laughs> I used to, this, this is even... actually an activity that as a teacher, I did a lot and it, it works wonders. Uh, it's Ooh, one of my favorite activities, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why don't we borrow that more in yeah. corporate learning? I do not know. I honestly can't tell you. you know, it's such an easy thing teaching, to do. Teachers are always looking for the way to socially interact students for students to show socially interact and for some reason we get out of school and it like goes away yeah. there's no more social interaction there's no more like group work there's no more like it's such an individualistic society when we shouldn't be right like that's not our our uh, setting but we force it it's almost like it's forced like we have to do everything by ourselves and we have to get the achievement by ourselves because then it's just me and uh, but that just, I just realized that, that like all the time when you're in school, you're always looking for those ways to connect students so they can learn from each other. But then we leave school and the school that prepares us for the workforce, right? It, the workforce doesn't emulate or imitate the way that we were being taught how to do things in groups so that we could help each other out. Yeah. Um, even college, yeah. right? Like college is very individualistic and, and you come from this you know, environment where you do everything together and you have someone helping you all the time and you have someone guiding you and it's kind of like, oh, you graduated, that's it. Welcome to being alone. Uh, right. Your life. <laughs> no, I think especially in college, I mean, it is very like everybody has their, and I think COVID really ruined that part of social learning in the school setting because now everything's online everything all your assignments are due on you know blackboard or canvas or whatever and you know you really don't get to interact with your classmates you go in you sit in your you know assigned seat and you know if you have a group of friends in there that's who you're going to talk to but you're not really interacting with everybody like you probably should or want to and i think that's because you know we've been we were in a lockdown where we really were told not to interact and i think that really hurt us and you know, I think even within the school setting for younger kids, I mean, I went back home and I was, you know, working with young kids. They are very different from when, how I was as a kid, you know, I mean, a lot of them, you know, they don't want to interact with each other. They, you know, they kind of, some of them are very mean, yeah. I will say, and stuff like that. And so, yeah. We had it in a good space. <laughs> so Diego, we're going to keep moving us along until you're unfrozen. Um, but to wrap us up, or not to wrap us up completely, but at least to take us to our next topic, because I think we're, we're kind of coming too close here. You know, 
we talked about it already. Like you need your influencers. This has nothing to do with pluralistic ignorance, except maybe that you need the leader, right? Um, because not only because you want that leadership position, but like word of mouth and social proof, that's the last piece I'll leave you with, is incredibly influential. I mean, influencer marketing is a 21.1 billion, with a B, billion dollar industry. Um, and so that is a lot of money. And all of us can probably think of an influencer either we really enjoy following or, in, you know, find really engaging or maybe we don't like and we hate seeing them on our news feeds on social media or um you know we don't like seeing them at conferences or we do there's the person we can't wait to see every time we go to an event whatever it is but it's it clearly works right is my point and so um when you can get someone whose opinion is trusted that word of mouth and social proof becomes even stronger but even when you can't just seeing that other people say this is a good thing usually is a more compelling way of convincing people that something is good than using all of the facts and figures in the world. Like if Rocio comes to me and tells me, um, I used, welcome back, Diego. I used ClickUp at my last job, then, uh, and I think it's absolutely spectacular, then I'm thinking about what project management tool we're gonna use. I'm like, oh, I trust Rocio's judgment. She has been a fantastic project manager for our team. I know she wants what's best for her team. So I'm gonna take her word of mouth, even though I was looking at this other product and I thought all of the facts and figures lined up. And Rocio is usually right. So I'm gonna say that it works, but even if she wasn't even right, I would, I would still have listened because that word of mouth and social proof is very powerful. Um, have either of you bought something just because somebody said, whether it was an influencer or a friend, family member, whatever, said it was a good thing to have around? Yeah, for sure. My iPhone. I used to be <laughs> Galaxy Girl Me too. For forever. I loved the pictures. I, but, you know, everybody was like, no, it connects to everything. You have an Apple. Like, you can connect all your photos. And, you know, and but here I am. <laughs> Becoming an ID is how I ended up with an iPhone because I moved to Hollywood or I, to California and um, my parents were like, we don't understand how to use Skype. I was like, really? So I had to get an iPhone so I could FaceTime. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that also because I couldn't FaceTime my dad and my mom and we used to have to, but you know, now there's WhatsApp yeah. other ways. But back when we, and once you go iPhone, it's kind of like. A- well, now you're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think yours is more word of mouth, right? They were like, it's awesome. It's so much better than the galaxy or whatever, where my parents were just like, eh, we're not going to conclude you on the dance floor if you, <laughs> yeah. if you don't get on What about you, Diego? Any uh, purchases you've made because of social proof or um, word of mouth recommendations? I mean, I think everything I have is like, I see it online or something. I see some like influencer have it on like, okay, like, the Air Forces, I'm pretty sure everybody has a pair of Air Forces because I really see <laughs> with, like, you know, all this stuff. And then the Hydro Flask, I think everybody had that in 2016, and it just continued to hold on this like that. So I think, you know, especially being in a y- younger generation, I think our purchases are very influenced based off the people yeah. around us and pe- what people say. I mean, for sure, they're like, oh, yeah, I have this. You're going to be like, okay, I need to get this. I need to try this. I think the Stanleys are the next thing now that Hydra's out. Everybody's talking about Stanleys. Oh, yeah, Stanley. Everyone, All the moms have Stanleys yeah. around here. I'm not <laughs> in the club, but I was like, oh, it's a Stanley thank, cup. And then, thank you, Diego, yeah. for being the young voice of our podcast. 
always intergenerational <laughs> intergenerational yeah um i well i think about the experience of parenting and i i don't think this applies to you yet diego but um being a new parent the overwhelming amount of social proof you deal with when you're looking at what products to buy for a new baby is insane and so hard to weed through. And then like the things that my friends would brag about being like the one thing we could not survive without were the things that like my baby hated. Like my child did not want, I, I bought this beautiful, very expensive baby wrap. Like that was my one splurge item that I bought for myself, was so excited to buy European, have beautiful flowers on it so I could wear this child everywhere. The kid hated, absolutely <laughs> hated being worn, being in her car seat, being in her carriage. Like for five months, we could not take the child anywhere. It was in the middle of the pandemic too. So all kinds of issues, but like the social proof was wrong. Yeah. Um, I listened to it, right? I was like, oh, Cybex is the brand. But then, like, but it just didn't work for me. Your baby was not socially proofed yet. So, not blank, but you know what I mean. Like, something that had no influence from anything. And she could say, I don't want this. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah who's telling you to get it, but this is not for me. My purchase was swayed. Her decision was Yeah, I had a, I had a lot <laughs> of looking at that, though. But from like a child's perspective, too, it's like, their brains are so, you know, not susceptible to the influence. Like they, they don't care what is going on. You know, they have like, and it's actually kind of a good thing. You know, I wish more people had that child state of mind where it was like, you know, they don't get influenced by certain things and like, oh, because everybody's doing it, I need to do it. Cause I'm like, sometimes I wish I was that way, you know, like rap, for example. I mean, you listen to it now because everybody listens to it, but I mean, at the same time, you know, it's not, you're really, genre but you're going to listen to and i think you know as a child you're like you're going to go to the beat of your own drum and not care what anybody else thinks and i think that's something that more people should have and just continue to have the like childlike you know persona in them so they can like be themselves and not have to be like influenced by others and like do things that others are doing because i think that's important to be your own self at the same time unless you're that's like so a interesting. child and then you want to do everything that your older sister that's, <laughs> well, that's what i'm like when when does the social proof thing kick in yeah. because there isn't like they are like kids are always learning from what you're doing they're little sponges and they will Im- imitate anything they see but yeah you're right just like rational logic obviously does not convince them of anything but like they aren't necessarily like if i told penny oh your friend juliana wants to do this if she doesn't want to do it she yeah. doesn't care so like I would be that might be research we should do. Um, when does that kick in? But you know, so I'm just gonna because we're getting so far and this is now a really long episode. I just want to say like, what do we do with this in the social learning and leadership space? Like, how do we make use of it? Well, I I think that going back to psychological safety, I think that that's an important part, like that environment that you need to create for this social influence to work, not from the leader, from from the people that inside the organization that are going to be the social influencers or um, the champions, but creating that safe space for people to be able to do it without the repercussion of like someone's watching over me, someone's going to tell me that I'm doing it wrong all the time, the micromanaging of how I do the influencing right like all of that and i think that that psychological safety is like a very important step before we even go into you know anything else yeah yeah for sure i think it i think um 
Oh, sorry. I think that it's important for, especially in an organizational setting, at times that leaders need to almost put themselves in their, you know, workers' shoes and kind of like learn from them as well. Because I think that's the thing. Once you're in power, you tend to think you don't have to learn anymore. And I think that's where organizations fail is that the leaders decide, oh, I've got to the top. I don't have to learn. I don't have to really. I've gained. I've gotten to my max. There's no more going up from here. And I think that's an issue is that, you know, there's so much going around that, you know, because you stop learning, your organization is going to stop learning. And I think if you're showing that you want to learn new things and you get involved with your employees more and like really sit down with them and find, you know, what they like and what they do and, you know, find how they're doing working solutions, you may bring it to how you implement stuff into your own organizational standpoint. I think you no, know, once you learn from others, you're going to just continue to grow as a business. Oh, great points. I mean, from the leadership perspective, um, one of the reasons I never went back to working for a company, and this is maybe not the best perspective to have had, but I was like, there's nobody I want to learn from above me who I feel like can train me in certain things. And I think that was a naive perspective. Now I've been around a little bit longer and I'm like, Nicole, you have a lot of blind spots still. Um, but from the organization I was in prior, like I came in kind of green and I quickly was at the top of all this learning stuff and nobody in my organization was above me in a learning position. So there was like no one left to learn that stuff from. Um, it's kind of a weird place to be, but I, as leaders, we do have a lot left to learn. And I would also say that, like, you don't have to learn from above you, which is a lesson I had to be, like, I had to learn, right? You don't have to learn from above you. I learned so much from the two of you. And technically, if you look at our org chart, you are lower on the org chart. Like, I don't think that says anything about, you know, who we are as human beings. But, like, in theory, I'm supposed to hold a higher position of power in this organization and so if you're not a great leader I think what you're saying is like I have nothing to learn from the people who are not at my level or above whereas I've really come to learn that you've you've got it full from everywhere everybody has something to bring to the table sometimes they see things from perspectives you haven't like you're talking about air force uh ones and I'm like I don't I gotta go get myself some I thought we were still on the adidas kick <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But you got, you got what I'm saying. Um, and then this whole thing of word of mouth is interesting because, like, do you, do you trust your leaders? Do you trust the people on the floor? Whose word of mouth, whose social proof actually resonates with you? You know, in English, we learn this idea of ethos, pathos, logos, which mm -hmm. is, like, basically something like speaker, it's credibility, or is is the, I'm going to miss them all up, ethos, logos is the logic, and pathos is the emotion. And so when you start to put those together, you're like, well, who's credible? Um, and that's a big question when it comes to influencer marketing and who we think of on our teams. But this has been like a really long pod class. Um, there's a lot to think about. If you've made it this far, thank you. Um, congratulations. But before we go, is there anything else that we need to say? about this topic that you want people to think about? I mean, I think one one thing, something else that I would say is that when we're talking about social influence and we're talking about social influence in a learning environment, like in learning and development, I feel or I think that there has to be a, like a higher up social influencer that is within that department that has power, 
right? Like that has the power to, and that has that influence in that, you know, executive circle to influence those other executives as to whatever it is that you want to do within the department. And I think that's very important. Um, so you have, you know, the, the social influence within the organization, like who's gonna influence the employees, but you also need to have someone in power that has social influence within that same department, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm making sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, because you could have and work on the social influence, but if there's no one with power to really implement anything, then it just becomes something else that didn't work. Mm -hmm. Those are my last two cents. <laughs> Well, um, I'm going to take this home then. What is this episode about? If I had to capture it in like a quick TLDR, I would say social influence is incredibly powerful. Even when we think nobody is telling us what to do, we are under the influence of social mores, norms, cultural perspectives, all of that stuff. And if you are aware of it, and can structure your learning experiences, your organizations around these influences in ethical ways, you can have a massive impact on the ways your team works together, on the way your team grows, on the way your team learns, and it can give you a competitive advantage. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for joining us, LabMates. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Okay, let me nudge you to remember the six factors that contribute to social influence. First, we talked about the brain's predisposition for social learning. Second, we talked about reciprocity. How do you create an environment where people feel they owe one another something, but in a positive way? Third, we discussed imitation. What are people imitating at your organization? And is it what you want them to be imitating? Fourth, we talked about dance hall theory. Who can get your colleagues on the dance floor? Fifth, we talked about pluralistic ignorance. How are we cueing people to behave in unfamiliar contexts? And six, no conversation about social influence will be complete without considering the effectiveness of word of mouth and social proof. So thinking about those six influences, we invite you to assess how you can leverage social influence to amplify your impact. Your experiment for this episode is to assess a single and specific high priority learning need for your organization. Identify how you can use one or more of the six factors we discussed today to influence more people to address those needs. For example, you might need to leverage influence to gain buy-in from leadership for a proposed change, or you might need to influence colleagues to want to participate in a learning event. Once you have done that, we encourage you to share your results in the Social Learning Lab community on Facebook. You can get feedback and insights from peers and practice building your influence. You can check out the full assignment brief in the Social Learning Lab community on Facebook. We hope we have influenced you to consider social influence today. We'd also like to ask you a little favor because we need help growing this community. If you have enjoyed the episode, Please leave us a review, like, subscribe, or share so that we can continue to build a supportive group of social learning enthusiasts. Until next time, keep making learning that matters.